0: I'm Autumn Lockett.
1: And this is Mitch Randall.
0: And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly.
1: Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, Autumn and I are gonna catch up. We're gonna talk about the recently announced retirement of Justice Stephen Breyer. We're gonna talk about a comeback for Wales, which is really exciting. And we're also gonna talk about what's going on in the Ukraine with a possible invasion of Russia. And then later on in the pod, we're going to sit down with Student Awesome, who has a website, Islamophobia.io. It's a very, very interesting interview, and Autumn and I want to talk a little bit more about what uh, Islamophobia is about and how we can prevent it here in our community. So stay tuned. It's going to be a good episode.
2: Let's get back in the water. I'm Rev. Starlette Thomas, and I'm inviting you to join me in the water. Well, it's a virtual gathering, too. The Raceless Gospel Initiative at Good Faith Media will host its first webinar, Introducing the Raceless Gospel, on February 24th at 12 p.m. Central and 1 p.m. Eastern. We'll go down in the water of baptism, where we are invited to examine ourselves as members of Christ's body, and to question why these color-coded labels stick to our skin. The webinar will be a safe space for you and for me, for all working to reconcile the North American church's history with race. It is also for those ready to embody a countercultural narrative that challenges the continued segregation of sacred space. I look forward to seeing you and to diving into this much needed work. May our time together have rippling effects. The event is free. Please register at goodfaithmedia.org.
1: Autumn, how are things?
0: Things are going well. Um, We are sort of soaring into that second semester with the kiddos. Everybody's in school. Um, Everyone's healthy. So we're feeling good. How are you guys doing?
1: We're doing great. Uh, Seems to be... uh we had a little snow this week here in Norman, yeah. Oklahoma, which is always exciting. Uh, but uh, yeah, we're, we're doing well. We had a little bit of a COVID spell uh, this week. I came down with a cough and sniffles and, of course, uh, everything that uh, you hear uh, with Omicron. We rushed to uh, the lab to get tested. That's and,
0: very responsible of you, by well, the way. Thank you for testing. Thank
1: you. Uh, I appreciate that. And uh, got the results back, came back negative, so... Uh, I'll be getting on a plane tomorrow and heading uh, down to the Texas-Mexico border, which uh, we're going to be covering a lot of stories of incredible ministry that is going on and just the the heart-wrenching stories of individuals who are making the trek from Central America, fleeing violence uh, for a new opportunity for their families. So uh, we're really uh, excited as well as intrigued uh, and honored to be going down there to, to spend time with some incredible human beings. So it's been going well. So big news this week, Autumn, at the Supreme Court.
0: I know. I always get a little bit nervous when I hear things coming out of the Supreme Court because it's been such a raucous place over the past, you know, five to six years.
1: Right. Absolutely. Well, uh, news broke this week that Justice Stephen Breyer has announced his retirement, giving uh, President Joe Biden the opportunity to nominate uh, a justice for the Supreme Court. So, should be interesting. Uh, I wrote an article about uh, Justice Breyer this week at goodfaithmedia.org, and he is a very interesting uh, justice, uh, very level headed, became known really uh, as a pragmatic justice. Um, believed in a living constitution. There was always that debate between him and Scalia when uh, Scalia was alive, uh, as well as R.G.B. about uh, originalism versus living constitution. and And uh, Breyer made it very clear he believed in the latter. That uh, the Constitution, the framers had an intent, and we need to take that intent intent into account. But they could not. There's no way they could foresee the issues that we were dealing with. Right, and therefore take that principle, guiding principle, uh, that is part of our American legal system, and then apply it uh, generally and liberally to the issues today to render decisions.
0: So, would you say that he has a Jesus worldview of the Constitution, (laughs) not a biblical worldview?
1: Yeah, he is. He is. There is no inerrantist uh, (laughs) in Judge uh, Breyer. you know, he, he is certainly committed to the Constitution mm-hmm. and upholds its truths to be self-evident. Uh, but his application of the Constitution is more pragmatic mm-hmm. uh, than, um, than a, an ide- ideologue would sure. be, uh, be probably want. But uh, so at any rate, uh, you know, big news. Uh, sad to see Justice Breyer go. Uh, but uh, he had hinted for a long time that he did not want to die uh, still being a justice, as R.G.B. did, unfortunately did, and uh, saw it was time for, for him to go. So, yeah. just a remarkable man. Appreciate uh, his service to our country, and now attention turns to his replacement. And
0: yeah, you know, after all the hullabaloo when it was Obama's turn to pick, and then things kicked up from the other side of things that said, "Oh, it's too late in your term to pick a new one." I appreciate him doing this, like well within the first. Part of Biden's terms so that, you know, we can actually have things work as they should.
1: Right. Yeah. And, you know, mentioning uh, the pick that was stolen from President Obama, and I still believe it was stolen. That's
0: that's, the actual stop the steal. That's exactly right,
1: (laughs) because uh, Senate Majority Mitch McConnell at the time uh, would not entertain the nomination of Merrick Garland to be Mm -hmm. on the Supreme Court. And so, what is so ironic and hypocritical of McConnell and those who were in power at the time in the Senate was that many of them are originalist, mm-hmm. and the Constitution is really clear when it comes to the Supreme Court nominees, and they decided to ignore what the Constitution said mm-hmm. uh, and so it just it was blatant hypocrisy on their part, and so uh. When President uh, Trump won the election and got to nominate three Supreme Court justices, it was uh, really eye-opening for the country. And so uh, I don't know if Breyer would admit that publicly, but uh, right. I think that may have gone into his well, thinking.
0: There has to be an extra layer of, you know, strategery going on. <laughs> and I just, yeah, I'm really hopeful that it'll be something that's good, not just for one side or the other, but for our country as a whole and to be fair, because that's what the Supreme Court should be. Right.
1: I agree, and you know there are ideologues uh, on each side of uh, the Supreme Court. You certainly have more conservative members who believe in originalism or liberal justices who believe in a living constitution. And for the most part, historically, they have debated these issues. many of them have fallen along uh, ideological lines. but there are occasions where uh, decisions are rendered. You know, from the center, and it's fascinating to me. I would never have thought, um, um, uh, um, John Roberts. John Roberts' title. uh, The
0: um. is he the chief? (laughs) Yep.
1: Come on,
0: come on, Mitch. You missed chief. Come on, (laughs) this is like in your roots, my dude. Oh my gosh! (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't get there either.
1: So what's interesting to me is that uh, a lot of legislation now is, you know, uh, or not legislative, but it's adjudicated. From the center and I would have never thought in a million years that the center now is Chief Justice John Roberts. I know. (laughs) I know. There
0: have there have been some other surprising decisions that have come out, even from Trump's picks. Yeah. And I've I've been really pleasantly surprised a couple of times.
1: So my hope is that the Supreme Court can get back to the days where they are elevated above the political fray and the, the partisanship that you find across the street at the Capitol and and can really have uh, robust, rigorous debates on these important issues, and and provide the American people uh, guidelines to, to to continue. And it's always going to be an ebb and flow when it comes to Supreme yes. Court.
0: And that balance is is very important. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. Speaking of balance, Mitch, yeah. um, we talk a lot on this podcast about climate change and about protecting our our world and um, our environment, and it's usually bad news.
1: Oh, please tell me. Not an oil, another oil spill.
0: So far, no. Okay, uh, good. That they're reporting. Um, <laughs> but there is some good news about the blue whale population. Oh, really?
1: Behold, What are I... the blue whales up to these days?
0: <laughs> Should I do the report in whale? Because I can speak whale.
1: <laughs> I will interpret. you. Must okay. have, if you speak whale, well, you must have an interpreter.
0: <laughs> I'll put my like whale interpreting filter on the mic right now, okay. so I'll just okay. speak English. Um, so in... On South Georgia Island, which I had to look it up, I didn't know where South Georgia was, and it is sort hey, of... That's, that's kind
1: of by Alabama, right?
0: A different Georgia. Oh. It's also not Republic <laughs> of Georgia, which is what I was thinking. How are they saying whales from the Republic of Georgia? No, <laughs> this is South Georgia Island, which sits sort of central between uh, the eastern coast of Argentina, the southern tip of Africa, and then Antarctica. So it's like out there in the middle of literally nowhere. Mm. Um, and it had a really strong impact on the whaling industry and there have been some some laws and some things that have come out to protect the whales and I realize we sound like hippie Californians right now talking about saving the whales but this is important Um, there have been just a steep decline in the population for the past 80 years of blue whales and in the past four to five years they are seeing an increase and then in um, this past year they've seen a significant increase in their population which is just great news
1: that's incredible news now are they attributing it to to anything necessarily
0: yes um, some laws protecting whales basically so um, they have imparted some laws that are against whaling and specific types of whaling that are, are really harmful and especially in this area mm-hmm. and so that's what they're attributing it to
1: yeah. I'm really interested because this is fascinating to me and I'm so glad that uh, the, the blue whales are, are making a comeback
0: Ooh, <laughs> that was more Chewbacca <laughs> than whale maybe. I don't know <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: um but I'm really interested, I mean, we've had this kind of, and, and not necessarily a complete pause on society, but certainly a slowing down of, of industry and commerce around the world. Uh, I, I'm wondering what's going to happen in the next few years with the environment. Mm-hmm. Are we going to see any uh, ramifications based upon the pandemic slowdown? Um, And I don't know, there may not be, Mm -hmm. but I'm wondering if there's any evidence to that as well. And then plus, hopefully countries uh, are continuing to meet the U.N. Paris Climate Agreement uh, and uh, the goals that they were set. And so I'm hopeful, but we need to be doing it at a much uh, faster pace Mm -hmm. uh, because there's some significant things that we're about to lose with the environment if we don't. So go Greta.
0: Absolutely. And just that hope that um it's not irreversible. Right. Because sometimes it starts to feel like we're just so far gone. Everyone's gonna catch Omicron. You know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. And there are still things that we can do and our positive choices in this realm really matter.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So glad the whales are coming back. Um some very tense news coming out of Ukraine uh last couple of weeks. Russia is uh, building their military uh, presence on the border of Ukraine, and Russia uh, looks like Putin is uh, going to invade. It seems inevitable at this point, unless uh, the European uh, Union and the U.K. and the U.S. and their allies can prevent that somehow through diplomacy. We're all hoping and praying that that is the case. But a lot of jockeying position right now uh, from President Putin and uh, and russia so i don't know what's going to come of it uh, it's, it's kind of a scary scary time uh, internationally I, I know europe is is really uh, tense right now and we know that we've got a lot of european friends uh, of good faith media who are concerned and and we want you to know that we're praying for you and, and hoping that a diplomatic peaceful solution can take place
0: right as if we need more stressful i feel like everyone is just sort of at a fever pitch um we are still living in a pandemic, even though some people don't want to admit that that's still happening. There are physical, emotional, mental impacts of that that are impacting us individually and as a group. And I think looking at that um, and admitting that that is a layer to everything that we're dealing with right now, even these giant military situations that are happening, are we need to look at through the lens of we are collectively going through something. Yeah.
1: So, what's disturbing about this recent buildup, not only the tensions at the border of Ukraine and and Russia. What is troubling to me, Autumn, as a U.S. citizen um, who've had relatives fight and die for their country, that a recent poll indicated that that 62% of Republicans felt that President Putin was a stronger leader than President Biden. And many of and many individuals within the Republican Party, not a majority, thank God, but uh, many of them are supportive of Putin as a leader. I seen him as a much better leader than President Biden. This as a kid of the eighties, this is mind blowing to me, watching President Reagan take on the Soviet Union and uh, and Mikhail Gorbachev, at the time, he stood at the wall in berlin and and you know challenged Gorbachev to tear down this wall in today's Republican party. Reagan would have been chastised as a as someone it, it, and just it, it just it, 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 it's mind blowing to me that uh, that so many people within the Republican party uh see Russia now, and Putin's politics and policies, a man who, there's plenty of evidence who have assassinated many of his political rivals, see him as a better leader than a democratic president. It's just mind-blowing to me.
0: Well, and I think that's something that a lot of our listeners may not realize is that, I'll speak for me and I'll let you answer, I grew up in the Republican Party. I can see things through a Republican lens, and there are a lot of values and things that I respect about that party. What we have seen in the past, what, decade, Mm -hmm. is a different Republican party than the one you and I grew up in.
1: Yeah, 100%. Uh, It has moved further and further to the right. Uh, I think that there could be an argument made that the Democratic Party has moved to the left, but not at the rapid speed of the Republican party has moved to the right. Uh, there's still as as frustrating as it can be sometimes with the Joe Manchins and the cinemas of the world there still is a, a middle within the Democratic Party there are moderate Democrats within the I don't know of very many moderate Republicans today and those that are moderate Republicans uh, often cast their ballots and votes with the fundamentalist majority
0: or they're ostracized yeah. right i mean that's really the choice they're given there's there's not a lot of room
1: yeah but uh, you're right the republican party today is not the party of lincoln by far it's certainly not the the party of eisenhower uh, i would even make an argument it is not the party of ronald reagan anymore it is the party of donald trump and it is extremist it is dangerous and it needs to be um, it needs to be called out for what it is, uh, and it's it's very frightening. They are not interested in democracy, mm-hmm. and they're interested in ruling even from a minority position, and it's, it is it is really terrifying. So all my Republican friends out there who are working hard to uh, normalize and bring balance to the Republican Party, please keep fighting. Please. We're rooting for you. We are rooting for you. We need a two-party system. We need a balance yes. uh, in this country. And so I just I keep rooting for them. But, yeah, uh, a lot of disturbing news coming out of uh, Ukraine and, and Russia, but also disturbing news on how some Americans are reacting mm-hmm. to it. Well, Autumn, you and I sat down with a very interesting gentleman this week. Uh, student, Asa- or student Awesome, mm-hmm. I should say, um, is a uh, Muslim who lives in Toronto, Canada, and has a website, islamophobia.io, and the concept is very simple. It is inviting people to tell stories about Islamophobia. It may be an encounter they had, or maybe a victim of Islamophobia, uh, or a, a situation where they witnessed Islamophobia taking place. Uh, and it's the, the, the bigotry and the vitriol and the hatred towards the Muslim community. And it's it's it, I, I, we loved sitting down with them because it was the power of story. So do you, I mean, do you have a story uh, that you like to share about Islamophobia?
0: Well, I shared one in our interview with Student Awesome, and I don't want to um, spoiler my right. own story, but I think it's you know one of one of Student Awesome's platforms, I guess you might say, is to take the Z out of Muslim and right. Islam, and that's. A distinction that I didn't really know was a thing, that you should say Muslim in Islam. And as soon as we found that out, then we corrected and we, you know, thank you. I want to know more. And I think that is sort of a, a, a small picture of what can be accomplished if you just open the dialogue with someone who's Muslim.
1: A student, uh, awesome, certainly, uh, av- or he certainly promotes himself as a student of life and culture mm-hmm. and religion and politics, uh, but he's, he's also a teacher, and so we appreciate the lessons that he has taught us during this interview. Um, this is an important issue. I hope you stay tuned and listen to this interview because I've got friends here in the Oklahoma City metro area. Uh, one is a friend to the pod, Imam mom, and Chauncey. He's a dear friend of mine. And I can't tell you the number of stories that I've heard from him mm-hmm. and other Muslim friends here in Oklahoma City where Islamophobia is front and center. And it's not even, um, it's not even subtle, Autumn. Right. I mean, right. It, is, it is an attack on the Muslim people. And it is a tragedy. It is insulting. It is un-American. Uh, and I would even argue it is un-Christian. Oh, absolutely uh, as it these is. people are acting towards uh, Muslim individuals, and so uh, stay tuned for the interview. Uh, we think it's really good, and check out his website, Islamophobia.io. Stay tuned.:
2: I'm Starlet Thomas, and I invite you to join us for Good Faith Stories. It's a new podcast series from Good Faith Media. And each episode of Good Faith Stories we'll bring you a collection of different stories tied to a theme. Unique and true stories as told by the people who live them. Each story is short, six or seven minutes, with a little mood music. Listen to Good Faith Stories wherever you get your podcasts. And find us online at goodfaithmedia.org.
1: Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest, Student Asam Hussain, known professionally as At Student Assam, is a Canadian author, filmmaker, and creative producer. His work explores the meaning of giving. He is the author of five picture books, producer of social concepts, including an artistic human progress collage, Islamophobia.io. Take the Z out, and one of his films has played in the film festival internationally. Islamophobia.io is the most recent project. His, he's running an international letter-writing campaign currently for the five-year anniversary of the victims of the Quebec City Mosque Massacre. He's received almost 40 letters from the public at this point. Assam Student Assam, I should say, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Uh, thank you very
3: much, Mitch, for having me. I just wanted to say that the pronunciation is actually Student awesome. And uh, that's how I go by. Yeah.
1: Okay. Student Awesome. So let's let's start there. Student Awesome. Let's begin with your name and why do you go by that that title, Student Awesome?
3: Um, student Awesome is uh, uh, my philosophy and how I try to uh, do my work. It's really uh, comes out of a struggle, I think, to um, try to reach, try to reach myself and maybe somebody else. And um, student approach, I think, is um, important in the idea that I am trying to be curious, try to be resourceful. I may not have all the tools all the time, but trying to um, learn as I go and trying to um, just take a step at a time. And I think that helps not really um, thinking too much about Too many things, but just focusing on the immediate steps that I feel I need to take and things tend to reveal themselves and kind of just go like that and see how it goes. Mm -hmm.
1: And I think that's such an important concept and one that is is. Being challenged today, uh, in some cases even being lost, I love this idea of this this lifelong learning as a student. Um, how does that that philosophy? Why is that philosophy so important, especially uh, in regard to your projects? This this idea of lifelong learning and always being a student of culture, religion, and the world.
3: I mean if i can be a student i'm fortunate i think i'm more desperate than anything else to be honest (laughs) um i mean i i I never kind of um you know it's kind of hard to put things into words when uh you have a lot going on creatively that you're thinking about um but i think more it's more really just a a struggle to reach um and um, if i can be a lifelong learner if i can um, stay active I mean, those are questions I don't really think about, to be honest. Uh, I really think about the moment, Mm -hmm. because I think the moment defines um, the next moment. Mm -hmm. So I'm more focused on just taking a step, to be honest, and trying to make, just trying to land that step. And, you know, maybe it'll end up appearing like it's a lifelong uh, movement, but. We'll have to see
1: (laughs) right Mm -hmm. now. Your website is phenomenal. You've launched uh, Islamophobia.io. So tell us what inspired you to launch this, uh, this website and what it's about.
3: Islamophobia.io is a outreach project, uh, driven by Muslims and allies and, and those people who want to stand up for Muslim communities. And that outreach is shown through the power of story, and so these are written submissions that are um, that are opportunities for uh, people from these communities to come and tell their truths because they're extremely telling when you talk about yourself in your own voice mm-hmm. and it becomes a special invitation now for the public when there's so much misinformation, especially about You know, Muslim communities and other communities that are taken as Muslim. um, There's very, very strong narratives that really um, create a lot of sadness and confusion, or just you know, a lot of um, wonder about who you are if you are from these communities. It's really hard to reclaim narratives when, when they're when I think there should be more. Um, ways to do that. So this is an opportunity really to reclaim narratives, uh, a way to do something about it, a way to uh, make change. It's been designed to be very simple, um, and it's instant. These stories tend to be published quickly, and again, they are opportunities for now for the public to come and read and benefit from, and perhaps they mm-hmm. will give you pause and something to think about. Excellent.
0: So are the submissions to your website predominantly from Muslim people?
3: Um, yes and no. I mean, they're, 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 it's, it's uh, more about uh, communities that have overlap with, uh, with Muslim people, allies, people who wanna do something about Islamophobia, mm-hmm. uh, or people who just want to tell their story. Um, and have some some interaction with the Muslim community. There's so many invisible stories. There's so many you know um, conversations that happen. I mean, these stories are categorized. So there's many many categories like mom, brother, love, pets. I mean, I just did a Google search the other day on pets, but you don't you know see any Muslim people just having pets. I mean, it's like you would think mm-hmm. that Muslim people ever have pets in their lives. I mean, so just having talking the story, telling the story about your pet could open someone's eyes and, and help them realize that, you know, the the conversation around Muslims is a lot more bigger than just talking about one or two things or just right. talking about the Middle East all day long. I mean, it's, it's a very um, broad, and I do believe that there's a poetic connection to prejudice. By talking about your cat, or by talking about love, there's a connection just that you being the storyteller coming from within these communities, I think there's a connection to just prejudice overall, because we're living in a system where I think, um, I think there's a narrative against the Muslim people by default.
0: Mm. Yes. So um, I grew up in a very small town in Texas. We um, had one traffic light, and that was it. And um, I had never met a Muslim person until I went to college. Um, and it wasn't like a thriving metropolis where I went to college. It was Lubbock, Texas, and it was mostly cotton fields and oil derricks. But I started college in August of 2001. And so you can sort of imagine where this story is going. I met some of my first Muslim friends in some of my science classes, and we were study partners, and we had had a couple of labs together. And then 9-11 happened. And I didn't know them well, my new classmates, but they were because they were the first folks that I had met that had this religion that I had only ever really read about, and definitely had only heard it pronounced with the Z, as you said. I didn't know any different, and I had this moment no, I love where how I was. You say
3: that, though. I
0: love how you say Muslim. Like Muslim. <laughs> I'm working really hard right, <laughs> to say it the right way. So I was driving in downtown Lubbock, and it is just flat. You know the 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 real. Of course, we were all grieving. We were all wondering what was happening next during that time. We were all away from our parents for the first time, experiencing this, you know, national tragedy. Um, But I'm also seeing it from a different perspective of these new friends who were feeling the same way and who start telling me about how they are being, um, they're feeling scorn, I Mm -hmm. guess is the the best way to describe that. So I'm driving and there were uh, these cotton farmers who were very upset because they grounded all the airplanes even the crop dusting airplanes so basically these airplanes need to drive to kill the cotton so they can pick the cotton and they can't because no one knows what's going on and I see a student walking just off campus and you know it's clearly a Muslim student and there is a Lubbock police car just following this student who just has a backpack is on the way to lab And, like, I just started crying because I'm like, the whole system is broken. It's broken start to finish. And, you know, at 18, it was just such a moment for me. And I think if I hadn't been where I was at that time, like, if I'd still been in my little podunk town, I don't know that my eyes would have seen what I saw.
3: No, yeah, I mean, I think the unfortunate thing is that uh, there's bigger forces at play and uh, citizens and common people um get um get pitted in the middle Mm unfortunately um i feel like um i don't know the world is very unfair uh where certain people um are are painted to be good and certain people are painted to be bad i think it feels like we're living in the wild wild west you mentioned texas it's like a cowboys and indians kind of movie playing out here all over again i think we're i thought we would be a lot smarter uh than that by now, but uh, it seems like it's it's the same kind of narrative, unfortunately, that there's one good group and one bad group. So, Student
1: student Assam, Mm. let me me ask that question, because I think Mm. that is extremely important. First of all, and we probably should have done this at the beginning of the interview, can you, for our listeners, define what Islamophobia is? Is I skipped that you. question to tell my story. Side, <laughs> no, that's <laughs> I fine. Get carried uh, away. <laughs> but but what, what exactly is the definition of Islamophobia, and why do you still think it's so paramount in culture today? Because you th- would think after all these years we'd be educated and it would have gotten better, but it seems to, in some instances, I, I guess we've made progress, but in others, it seems like. We've we've taken a step backwards. So define it for us and then tell us why you think it's still paramount today.
3: I mean it's it's analogous to like anti-Semitism. You know, it's it's really like in, in, when you say someone's anti-Semitic, it it really means that there's a prejudice against um the Jewish community. Um, you know, generally at a high level, that's really what it means. Um and and I guess there's different um variations of what anti-semitic means it's been redefined several times and it also depends who says it right uh whether it's uh one group or another um there's different degrees of of, of this definition um but generally it means there's a prejudice against a group like uh, against the jewish community for example so similarly there would you know um, um for me you know to be very honest it's it's, it's um you know i don't really um Academically, uh, it, it may there's a definition for it, but I, again, it's similar to to the Jewish community in the sense that there's a prejudice against the Muslim community. Yeah, um, that's that's really how I look at it.
1: And there's uh, there's overt Islamophobia, and there's also systemic Islamophobia, where systems are in place that devalue the Muslim community and. Cool. Um, you know, look at them and treat them differently than their Anglo yeah, counterparts.
3: Decent point. When, when when Donald Trump said that, that there was that that Muslims, you know, uh, we need to figure out what the hell is going on. I mean, how could somebody at that level of 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 he's the highest person in, in the country? He could never say that, you know, because you it goes against the Constitution of the United States of America, where you um. You, you know, you deny a a group of people based on religion, but that is so ignorant because how do you define that? Based, like, how do you determine someone's what? Is it religiosity? Is it skin color level? Is it, like, like, like Dr. Oz? I mean, he's, he's also Muslim. I mean, but he's on on a lot of talk shows. Is he also banned from the United States? Muhammad Ali and these other people. I mean, there's all kinds of, like... (laughs) I mean, there's this people have connections with Muslims all over the world, but it, it was just, that's that's textbook Islamophobia right there, right? I mean, that's dangerous Islamophobia there right there because it emboldens people to um, um, just um, look at somebody and say, you don't belong here and you need to leave. And you can't do that. that he needed to be reprimanded and removed just, just based on that because if you dare to do that to any other group, you would be removed. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Muslims are the can you kick around, and you get points for, and you and you um, and you uh, benefit from. Um, so hey, you know, if if that's, I mean, I think that's that's it's it's despicable.
1: Do you think it's still paramount because there has been a backlash against? Uh, the push towards a more diverse culture because, I mean, we saw this in the presidential election when Barack Obama was running for president and there were people out there calling him a Muslim as though that were somehow, a bad thing, and I do appreciate there were people on the right who actually stood up for candidate Obama at the time, saying he was a, was a good man, and it didn't matter if he was Christian or Muslim; he was a good man either way, uh, and, and that shouldn't you know, define him as good or evil uh, in in their eyes. And so, and then after the Obama administration, it seemed to really ramp up with the Trump administration and this anti-Islamic. Uh, Fervour that was in the culture. My question for you Do you think it's still paramount? Because white supremacy, in all of its negativity, is making an attempt to retain power that they've always had in culture. It doesn't matter if it's Canadian or American. Or other parts of the world, that there's this this growing, uh, or this this ever-present, I should say, white supremacy that says white is better, Christian is better, and everybody else needs to find their place in society.
3: I mean, just read the Constitution of the United States of America. I mean, if you have other religions that are um, um, able to be. In the United States, and 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 function, just like any other Christian would, then go back and, and try to understand the uh, you know the the academic roots of of uh, of the country and 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 how it, how it uh, ideally should function. Um, it's just that there's a, a a majority group of people and there's a minority group of people. Uh, I remember reading Soul Sister from um, uh, Grace Halsell she was working for Lyndon Johnson in the 60s and um, um uh, had to she actually went did a social experiment back then and um turned herself into a black woman and she um journeyed into Harlem and into the south and it was so harrowing of the details that she had she wrote about such a courageous woman you know um that it's you know, this is the kind of stuff that people of color live with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have to almost pretty much. It's like you're begging for your, your humanity. You got to define yourself. You got to. Ex- there's definitions and stuff. You have to. You know, constantly explain. Um, yeah, as was mentioned earlier, you're surveilled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult. You know, um, when, uh, as you know when there's a system that um, doesn't trust you. And I think it uh, is unfortunate when there is this narrative, again, of, of um, you know, um, again, I live in Canada, so it's a bit different here. We're not a hegemonic state. We don't go around um, telling people what to do. Um, uh, however, I, I feel the U.S. Um, has an issue with that. Sure. Um, but there's so much inside the U.S. that should be cleaned up, honestly. Um, there's so much um, to do within your own home, yeah. I, I don't, it just baffles me as to spending so much money somewhere else when there's
1: so much you can do at home.
3: What really it's, intrigues me. is the Christian of, principle to take care of your home.
1: Sure. Yes. What really intrigues me about your, your goals and your website, uh, Islamophobia.io is that it concentrates on story. And you and I have had conversations previously to this interview about the power of narrative. Why did you decide to concentrate on narrative, and why is narrative so powerful of a tool? I think it's transformative. It's, very,
3: it's, it's, it's something that is, is an intimate experience between you and the narrative itself. It gives you many things. It can give you pause. It can, it can help you reflect. It can take you somewhere where you used to be. I think that when you hear a truth of another person in their voice, or at least uh, even, um, even as a, a written account, I think it, there's something there that is, um, I think something there that's um, authentic. And I, the way I've set up the site, I don't need perfect storytellers. I don't need people to be from the exclusive club because in every community there's that exclusive club, mm-hmm. those 16 people that keep talking about the community. You know, let's, talk, let's let everyone talk about themselves and the communities that they involve themselves with in their own voice, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, there's, everyone has a truth and everyone has their own experiences. And if we open it up to more people, you know, explaining and, and and not not explaining, but but sharing and 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 um and um, you know, telling their stories. Then I think the the amount of learning that can happen is amplified.
1: I love that. That's great.
0: Story, stories worked for Muhammad. Stories worked for Jesus. So why shouldn't <laughs> they work for us? Well, right.
1: Even preceding that,
3: it's it's God. God knows yes. the power of storytelling. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know? That like uh, much of the bible and the quran are filled with stories
1: mm-hmm.
3: and there's a there's a a verse in the quran that says um, you know so relate stories that perhaps they will give thought mm. yeah. so stories are are meant to are are, are tools um of engagement and, and and tools of sharing and i think the the idea of wrapping an experience up in story mm-hmm is a way to communicate with others,
0: mm-hmm.
3: right? If you can talk about a complex subject as a story and all of a sudden it becomes acceptable.
1: Yeah. And speaking of stories, you've got two really important projects going on right now, the Jan 29 and museum projects. So tell our listeners a little bit about those two projects.
3: So the Jan 29 campaign I have right now is to commemorate the, Uh, the victims of the Quebec City mosque shooting massacre that happened on January 29th, 2017, five years ago from today. And um, I thought that, you know, it was very, very important for the public to get involved and, and, you know, have an opportunity to write a letter of remembrance. And here's the reason why. That day will come and that day will go and being from the Muslim community, it really goes down by there's a couple of news reports. This is a heinous attack. I mean, this is, these are six fathers and six citizens. There's a lot of people who tell me this is not my experience. But when you put it like that, there's, these are six fathers, six citizens, you know, six people that were your neighbors. It's like, okay, I mean, I can understand that because, I mean, those are six human beings. Um, it doesn't matter what faith you're from, does it really? Mm-hmm. I mean I mean, if someone blew with six fathers in your neighborhood, I mean, would it really matter? right? Um, so I think that when we shift from just listening about this incident to maybe doing something about this incident, it becomes interesting now. It becomes engaging. It becomes an opportunity for the public to do something about it. Right. And when the act of writing a letter of remembrance is doing something about it, you know, it's like and the letters I've received from across the country um, are I'm just amazed and an and honor to um, be able to be a part of that, that, that you know, to even do something here. And but really, the, the focus is doing something about it. I think if we do something about it, it can it can create a shift. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so really, um, the museum concept that that really is is the is kind of the vision that I have is to curate some of these initiatives that I have now as perpetual change making opportunities because J29 mm-hmm. is going to come and go. I'm not interested in just one day. I'm interested in change making. So, um, it's about change making. It's not about just. Um, the lights and the cameras for one day so these letters are digital and they will be around on january the 30th they will be around on february the first right. they will be around february the first 2023 mm-hmm. you know inshallah god willing um so the the idea is that you can come across and encounter these letters at any time yeah it's proactive it's not reactive right
1: yeah mm-hmm. i like that a lot so So, uh, Student Awesome, we are coming to a close in our interview, and Autumn's got one last question here for you a second. Before I pitch it to her, you know, a lot of times here at Good Faith Weekly, we analyze a lot of the problems and issues that the world faces, and we recognize those, and we call those out, and we try to shine some light uh, into those uh, those dark, dark places. But we also try to shine a light into the future. And so my last question before I turn it over to Autumn is, do you see hope? Do you see some progress being made across the world where there is a future where peace and understanding and mutuality and respect can persist?
3: Absolutely. Most of my teachers in my life were white and Christian growing up in Canada. I've had the most amazing teachers in my life. I'm still in touch with my grade one teacher. Mm -hmm. She was an amazing, amazing teacher. And so, um, you know, I do believe from the letters I've received, and and the kind of work I'm trying to do, I think there are a lot of good people out there. And I think that um, there always will be. Mm -hmm. I think that um, it's important to work with these kinds of people and and continue to work together. I truly believe that through projects uh, where people can collaborate, and there's opportunities. I think it's about innovation, to be honest, where you can bring more people together. Honestly, like the letter, letter writing campaign I have right now, I feel like some of the letters that I've received, people wouldn't probably have written if there, if this opportunity wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's about the opportunities that arise, that then bring people out of the woodwork and out of all kinds of places that you didn't even know existed. So I hope to try to continue to innovate and to think about new ways of engaging um and and um and providing um you know maybe some some concepts that uh myself and others can engage in to amplify um you know the idea of giving and
1: the idea of good well we appreciate all the hard work you're doing it is making a difference my friend so thank you so much well autumn's got the last question uh that we ask every one of our guests so autumn take it away
0: Our tagline at Good Faith Media is There's More to Tell. So, in light of your work and our conversation here today, what is your more to tell, Student Awesome?
3: You know, I appreciate that. I think that um, I I invite the public, especially the American public. You know, I've lived in New York City before, it's one of my favorite cities. Um, So, um, I invite the public to tell a story and save a life. When you come to Islamophobia.io, just by you sharing a story, I bet you someone will read your account and and there is no story that is too small. Every story matters and your story matters and you will make a difference. I invite you to come to Islamophobia.io and share.
1: Student, awesome. Thank you so much for taking uh, some time out this week to talk to us at Good Faith Weekly. We really do appreciate all the hard work you're doing, and we applaud the hard work you're doing because it's not easy, but you're doing good work and practicing good faith. So thank you, my friend. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. To our listeners, we want to thank you for tuning in this week. We always appreciate you, and that is Islamophobia.io. And again, that's islamophobia.io. Student, awesome. Thank you so much for being with us. And to our listeners, thank you as well. And until next week, keep living good faith.